Hello, and welcome to the Dark Ages podcast. Episode 1, Origo Gothica. So here I am, setting off in my little skiff made of books into the dark, unknown seas of podcastery. I've decided on my course to begin with the last hundred years or so of the Roman Empire, and to take a look at those years with a focus on the groups that would create the new world that emerged out of the collapse in the West. Put another way, I'm going to talk about barbarians. And in talking about barbarians in the Roman Empire, there's really only one logical starting point, and that's the Goths. They are the first domino that sets off the whole thing, a pinball that ricochets around Europe and upends the old order. Yes, they are both dominoes and pinballs. What's your point? They were, of course, not the only pinball, and here is where I run into a structural problem. It's the same structural problem faced by anyone who wants to explain what happened to Rome in the 4th and 5th centuries. The fractured narrative. There are too many things happening, too many battles and wars popping up, people appearing and disappearing, bewildering speed. It can be a real problem to follow, is what I'm saying, and sometimes it gives the impression of a series of disconnected events, characters, and people because the nature of the connections is so complex as to be impossible to hold on to them. So my plan is this. I'm going to talk about the Goths for three or four episodes, where they came from, what they did, how they moved around inside the Empire, and how they affected it. My current plan is to take them up to around 476, which you will know is the traditional date given for the fall of the West. Then, once we've gotten through all of that, we'll rewind, and I'll take a look at another group, probably the Huns, and do the same thing, then move on to another, and so on, bringing everyone up roughly to the same place in time, and doing it all again. Sounds complicated and confusing, but my goal is to show how each of these stories connects to the others, and intertwines, and influences them. So out of confusion will come enlightenment, or at least a fuller understanding of the events of late antiquity. That's my general plan for the podcast as a whole, by the way, though I will probably need to adapt it as we move along. With any luck, by pulling individual threads out of the skein of history, I'll be able to braid them together into something that makes sense. Sound alright? I am acutely aware that this is one of my first episodes, and I'm probably just talking to the dog. But he is looking at me approvingly, and that's good enough for me. Let us be offed into the misty past. So, Goths. Who were they? Where did they come from? Well, in the late 70s, a movement started in the post-punk music scene, centered especially around bands like Susie Sue. I just thought I'd better get that out of the way. Although, I reserve the right to make Doc Martens and vampire jokes whenever the mood strikes going forward. But seriously, you have to make sure you've got your search terms right when you try and Google Goths and Gothic a pair of mightily abused words. The people known as the Goths, difficult to Google though they are, were a Germanic people of the eastern branch of the Germanic peoples. They were not among the tribes that the Romans were used to dealing with, having originated somewhere in the third or even fourth layer of tribes back from the border, where Roman information was sketchy at best. The story they told themselves, that is the Goths told themselves, as related by Jordanes in The Origin and Deeds of the Goths, is that they came from an island known as Scansia, that would be modern Sweden, and left that land under the leadership of a king called Berig to cross the Baltic Sea and settle in a place they called Gothascandia, which would be the coastline of modern eastern Germany and Poland, 
Pomerania, around the mouth of the river Vistula. I have good news and bad news about that origin story. The good news is that archaeology suggests the appearance of a culture along the coast of the Baltic at just about the right time to match up with the Jordani story around the end of the first century. The bad news is there are no corresponding finds across the way in Sweden that suggest a strong link like you would expect in a large-scale mass migration. There was contact and trade across the Baltic, and had been since the Stone Age, so the more likely scenario is that traders and farmers and their families began to migrate across in small groups and settled and adapted to their new environment and neighbors, until there were enough of them and they were changed enough to become a new cultural group. The story about King Berig is probably just that, a back formation that the Goths created to provide themselves with a point of origin. That culture identified by archaeologists is called the Vilbark culture, by the way, and it's pretty well accepted that Vilbark is synonymous with the early Goths. One of the interesting features of it is that they practiced a mix of both cremation and inhumation, that is, burial of the dead, and that their dead were not buried with weapons. Other grave goods sometimes, but never weapons. Apparently the ancient Goths had no more battles to fight once they had slipped their mortal bonds. Those two features remain pretty consistent as the culture grows, changes, and spread. And grow, change, and spread it did. Within a few generations, the Goths outgrew the ability of their forest farms to feed them, and began to put pressure on their neighbors. Competing for land, they pushed south and east, and pushed several of their neighbors off their lands, most notably the Vandals, who were already well-established in Central Europe, and were forced to relocate. We can see that in the archaeology as well, as the Vilbark culture spread at the expense of others up the Vistula River, mainly. The Vandals, by the way, have an archaeological culture associated with them as well, and as soon as I learn to pronounce it, I promise I will tell you all about it. All of this dislocation, people bumping up against each other, probably helped trigger the destructive Marcomannic Wars toward the end of the 2nd century, which tied down the Emperor Marcus Aurelius in Dacia for much of his career. The Romans didn't know about the Goths as the cause of these struggles, though. Not yet. Eventually, those Gothic pioneers reached the edge of the forest zone and stepped blinking out into the bright sunlight of the Pontic steppe. The vast expanse of pancake-flat grassland that stretches north from the Black Sea and east from the Carpathian Mountains to wherever you care to draw your line, really. Southern Russia and the Ukraine, basically. The Romans called the region Scythia, and would be infuriatingly consistent about describing the people who lived there as Scythians, no matter what they actually were. Once again, Jordanes tells us about a king, named Philomer, but here again is probably a character of pure legend. He also tells us that almost immediately upon reaching this green open land, the first great division of the Goths occurred, into eastern and western branches. There's a story about a river and a bridge collapsing. But given that the likelihood of any kind of substantial bridge in this part of the world at that time is pretty slim, we're once again in the realm of myth. There was, though, a division, along environmental lines as much as anything else. In the east, on the steppe proper, the Goths became known as the Grathungi, which is a fun word to say, Grathungi. Further west and south, up against the Carpathians and closer to the Danube, were the Tervingi, which is also a good word, but not quite as much fun as Grathungi. The dividing line between the two seems to have been the river Dniester. In terms of day-to-day -day life, these divisions probably didn't figure much in the worldview of the Gothic people, 
they would have been much more focused on their own individual tribes and villages. Also, don't imagine any of this as a genocidal replacement of previous occupants. There must certainly have been conflict, and by the end of the second century the Goths were undoubtedly the dominant force in Scythia, but they seem to have managed to form a fairly multi-ethnic confederation, incorporating other Germanic peoples like the Heruli and Carpi, and even more foreign to them, the Sarmatians, who were an Iranian tribe. They'd made themselves master of the grasslands, and now shared a border with the largest and wealthiest empire of ancient Europe. The Romans. Obviously. And it was time for the Goths to make themselves known. Raiding began in the 3rd century. At an opportune moment, Rome was distracted by ongoing political crises and civil wars, which distracted the empire's military establishment, and drew troops away from the frontier garrisons along the Danube. The first Gothic raids were smash-and-grab jobs across the river. These grew in size and ferocity as the advantages of the wealth-by-robbery approach became clear to the various Gothic tribes, and they began to form larger groups and alliances. Scalability, ladies and gentlemen, scalability. As a result, the Goths have the distinction of being one of the three great pressures on the empire during the so-called crisis of the 3rd century, the others being civil war and plague. This first round of raids reached a crescendo in around 250, with the appearance of a Gothic leader called Neva. Several sources refer to him as a king, but I shall not, for reasons I'll talk about in a minute. I shall also pass over the spelling of his name, C-N-I-V-A, which is clearly ridiculous, and I'm going with the silent C, on no higher authority than if they wanted me to say Kniva, they should spell it with a K. Every other time I've seen a word that starts with a C followed by a consonant, the C is silent. Tesiphon, Tonic, Cthulhu... Oh, dang. Where was I? Right. Invasion and war. Neva's invasion force was big enough and well-organized enough that a multi-pronged approach was possible. The first detachment of maybe 20,000, a mix between Goths and Sarmatians, crossed the river and laid siege to Martianopolis, while Neva himself crossed further upstream before turning eastward and attacking Nove. Jordanes reports that he had 70,000 men with him, which is a lot, and probably too many to be believed. That attack failed, so he moved further south, towards Nicopolis. There, Neva was surprised and chased away from the city by an army under the command of the Emperor Decius. So far, not going entirely according to plan, as far as Neva was concerned. The Goths were having an easy enough time foraging among the unprotected villages of the countryside, but the real wealth was in the cities, and those were proving tougher nuts to crack. But Neva was not the type to give up in the face of a minor inconvenience like a few Roman legions. So instead of retreating across the river and pretending that none of it had happened, he and his Goths moved still further south, into the mountains where they would be harder to track. This proved to be a good idea, and Neva was able to double back and surprise Decius at a place called Barrowy. Jordanes describes the ambush thus, quote, Neva and his Goths fell upon them like a thunderbolt. He cut the Roman army to pieces and drove the emperor, with a few who had succeeded in escaping, across the mountains again to Moesia. End quote. This was big news. Defeated by a barbarian force on imperial soil, Neville had free hand now to link up with the other column and attack the town of Philippopolis. The city fell, quote, after a long siege, end quote, and in the summer of 251 it was sacked. Decius got a move on to reconstitute his shattered army. 
Neva had no intention of conquering territory or controlling cities, though. Who wants that kind of hassle? His men were loaded up with gold and baubles taken from the citizens of Philippopolis, as well as with a fair number of the citizens themselves, as slavery was just as lucrative for the Goths as it was for the Romans. That would slow them down, and Neva decided it was time to go. But now he had a problem. He was more than a hundred miles into enemy territory, and there was a fairly substantial mountain range in his way, as well as Decius's new army, which would no doubt be on his heels. The retreat did not go well, as Decius was able to harass the retreating Goths for most of the way, winning several minor engagements and recapturing a fair amount of the booty. Neva apparently had taken careful note of the terrain as they had come down from the north, for he now steered his battered Goths toward a place where he knew he could make a stand, near a village called Abritus. He divided his men into three battles, placed two to face the oncoming Romans and a third behind them on the far side of a stretch of boggy ground. The Romans easily scattered the first two divisions, but were then trapped in the hidden marsh and almost completely annihilated. Both Decius and his son Herennius were killed, the first emperor to die in battle against a barbarian force. First two, technically, since Decius had named his son co-emperor. Three legions were utterly destroyed. The Danube frontier did not have three legions to spare. The nearest commander, by name of Gallus, had been instrumental in the defense of Nove, and was acclaimed emperor by the remaining garrison troops, as somebody needed the authority to negotiate with Neva. Gallus was forced to allow the Goths to retreat safely back across the river with their remaining treasure, as well as agreed a tribute payment to forestall further destruction. Several commentators at the time accused him of treachery for this, Jordanes included, but there was really nothing else he could do. The loss of the Danube legions would leave the Danube frontier vulnerable for the next twenty years. The Goths had arrived. Neva's not heard from again, but his attack had demonstrated conclusively that there was a new power in the ancient world that needed to be taken seriously, though the Romans would occasionally forget to do so. The army was perpetually undermanned, pulled troops away from the Rhine to man the garrisons along the Danube, and the West German tribes would act up, and vice versa, and the Persians in the east were always a worry as well. Added to that, an epidemic known as the Cyprian Plague sapped the strength of both army and economy. The Goths raided across the river frequently, laying waste to Moesia and penetrating further south into Thrace. But they were beginning to run into problems caused by their own success. The lands next to the river were becoming depopulated. There wasn't anything left worth taking. So the Gothic raiders had to push further and further into the interior of the empire, daring to cross the mountains, which limited options for retreat down to only a few passes. The return journey, slowed down by loot, was becoming more and more perilous. They would eventually come up with a way around this problem, quite literally, by going to the sea. The Greek trading cities on the Crimea were officially under the protection of Rome, but that protection was becoming as useless as a brass napkin by the 250s and 60s. These cities had ports, and these cities had boats, and had people who could use them. People who would be willing to provide passage to large bands of violent-looking men for the small price of keeping their various body parts connected to each other correctly. The first seaborne attacks by Gothic raiders fell on the Pythias, on the eastern coast of the Black Sea, which is in modern Georgia. It was a complete failure, as the ships simply dropped the Goths off and went home, and had the raiders not managed to commandeer other boats more or less by chance, they would all have been killed. The next year, the attack aimed slightly further south, at Phasis, and they kept the boats close this time. 
This attack also failed, but nothing daunted, the Goths took another shot at Pityus, and this time the city was unable to defend itself, as the Emperor had withdrawn its garrison in the meantime. Shortly after that, the greatest prize of the year, the rich city of Trebizond, fell when its defenders were surprised and simply ran away. The Goths loaded up their ships with spoils and slaves, and sailed back home in triumph. I need to note that these pirate bands were made up of Eastern Goths, Grithungi, and were not the same groups as those who were ravaging the Middle Empire. And like most Gothic raiding parties, they contained a substantial contingent of other Scythian peoples, most notably the Samaritans in the case of these Black Sea raids. The raids themselves continued year after year, soon touching the whole northern coast of Anatolia, and eventually forcing their way through the Dardanelles and penetrating into the Aegean in 268. The Western Goths had found a way onto boats by that time as well, accompanied by another tribe known as the Carpi, after whom the Carpathian Mountains are named. These later attacks were launched from the Greek cities at the mouths of the Ukrainian rivers, and the list of cities that fell, often by treachery, is a list of the great cities of the east. Nicaea, Nicomedia, Chalcedon, even Athens, and probably Corinth, Argos, and Sparta all fell to the Goths. In its response to all of this, the Roman state did not cover itself in glory. That may be excusable, as the crisis of the 3rd century was still ongoing and the imperial state was just barely keeping its head above water, but local power structures failed to serve their people just as comprehensively. Even in the massively successful sea raids, most of the bands attempted to return to their home territories on foot, which left them wide open to counterattack. In cases where spoils were taken back from the barbarian invaders, we hear of several cases where captives moved smoothly from Gothic captivity into Roman captivity to be sold as slaves to the profit of whatever local landowner happened to have captured them. Much of the more fungible loot simply disappeared into the pockets of local militia commanders. This was, of course, outrageous, and caused outrage at the time, but there was no possibility of redress. The imperial government was powerless, so it's perhaps not surprising that the Goths could usually expect help from the local populations, as they aimed to get some of their own back from the predatory and parasitic officials that ruled over them from the towns and cities. Paradoxically, the failure of the central government to protect its subjects led to more power accumulating in those predatory local powers, who could at least raise the militia in a timely manner. The Roman Empire was in very real danger of fragmenting into dozens of little city-states and fiefdoms, 200 years ahead of schedule. And it probably would have, had the Emperor Aurelian, not by sheer force of will, managed to arrest the death spiral. One of the pillars of that achievement, in 271, was his defeat of Canabaudes, who was the latest Gothic leader to make Moesia miserable. Aurelian drove Canabaudes out of Moesia, but then broke with his predecessor's policy and followed the Goths across the river to defeat him again on his own territory. Canabaudes and 5,000 of his men were killed, and the Goths were back in their box for the next hundred years. Aurelian did this, by the way, while on the way to a completely different war, which he also won, destroying the briefly independent empire of Palmyra and reattaching the Far East to the Roman world. He was an impressive dude, is what I'm saying, if I'm allowed to call Roman emperors dude. Probably not to their face. Now I am aware that I have spent more than 3,000 words on the subject of the early history of the Goths, and have not even reached the date that is this podcast's nominal beginning point. I suspect that this kind of thing may turn out to be a habit. So for the remainder of this episode, 
I'd like to take a minute and talk about the culture and society of the Goths, so we have a better picture in our heads before we go on with the story. Okay? Source-wise, we have a far clearer picture of the Tervingi, the Western Goths, close to the Danube, than of the Grithungi. This is because, obviously, they were closer to the Romans, who wrote about them. But more so, we have the treasure of the Gothic Bible. The Bible was translated by the Goths evangelist, a bishop named Olphalas. I'll talk more about his life in the next episode. But he was, not to overstate, the man. He spoke Greek and Latin, and of course his native Gothic. He set out to translate the Bible for the edification of his flock, but in order to do that, he first had to invent an alphabet for them, which is quite a thing to do. Not all of his translation survives, but what we do have is a goldmine for scholars, both linguistic, obviously, but also for social information. Because looking at how Ophelas chose to describe concepts in the Biblical Testaments gives us clues as to the structure of Gothic society. The whole territory of the Goths was called by them the Gutsuda, which literally translates as Land of the Goths, but had a broader meaning in actual usage, meaning the whole lands over which they held authority, not just where they were actually settled. It therefore included all the non-Gothic people who were allied or subject to the Goths, and implied the Goths' protection for them. Theoretically, the Gutsuda could be under the command of a single Theudens, a king, essentially but in practice no such position existed among them. Instead, there was a collection and confederation of tribal units, called Kunja, or Kuni in the singular. These were, <clears throat> These were supervised by the Reichs, the chief. I suspect that the similarity of the Gothic Reichs with the Latin Rex is the reason a lot of contemporary Roman writers consistently call Gothic leaders kings, when they were in fact no such thing. The similarity between Reichs and Rex is coincidental, but I know what you're thinking, and yes, there is a connection between Reichs and the modern German Reich, which I assume you don't need me to explain further. I should pause to note, by the way, that most of this is coming from Professor Herwig Wolfram's History of the Goths, which is an exhaustive and occasionally exhausting work on the subject, and pretty much the standard, so thanks to Professor Wolfram. In times of trouble, the various Kunja would send representatives to a council, and if the trouble was really bad, the council might elect a kindens. This is usually translated as judge, and interestingly, it's the title given to Pontius Pilate in the Gothic Bible. The judge held authority over the other chiefs, but it was not a hereditary position. He held extraordinary powers to meet challenges, but it was a mainly defensive position, and he was not permitted to leave the Guthuda. This would lead later on in our story to the extraordinary image of the Emperor Valens meeting with the Judge Athanaric on a boat in the Danube, so that the latter could avoid breaking his oath. While there was no tradition of monarchy as we would recognize it, the Goths did have noble and indeed quasi-royal families. The most famous of these were the Tervingian Baltai, who we will have occasion to deal with, as well as the Grithungian Amals, who will come up a bit later on. The Baltai were apparently of the second rank below the Amals, but were certainly the most prestigious of the Tervingi. Nobility seems to have been based on descent from ancestral leaders, especially those of the early migrations. That explains the presence in Jordanes of those legendary kings, Berig and Philomer. These are the mythological underpinnings of the god's social structure, which will allow me to segue fairly neatly into the subject of religion. Joy. 
We sadly don't know much specifically about the pantheon the Goths worshipped. When writing about them, Roman commentators followed their usual practice of assigning Gothic deities the names of their Greco-Roman equivalents. That certainly helped their intended audience keep things organized in their minds, but it doesn't help historians, or historically-minded neo-pagans, very much. And of course, in this area, Ophelaz's Bible is not much use. It does seem clear that each kuni was defined by the individual ancestor from whom they descended, and whom they worshipped. In later stories of Gothic Christian martyrs, it's the refusal to sacrifice to these deities that leads to persecution. Each tribe would have a tribal idol, apparently most often made of wood. None of those survive, and detailed descriptions are also sadly lacking, though. There do seem to have been a shared pantheon of gods in addition to these parochial ancestors. These are collectively known as the Aesir, a word which will be familiar to those of you who know your Viking mythology. Equally familiar is the concept of the world as Midjungards, literally, the house in the middle, but more usually rendered as Middle-earth. And here is the first appearance of that enduring cosmological idea, beloved of the Vikings, Tolkien, and Jack Kirby alike. Naming the Gothic gods is tricky, since there are very few sources and we're mostly dependent on partial or difficult-to-interpret descriptions and inscriptions. It is possible the Tervingai venerated the river Danube, but the nature of that veneration is unclear. There seems to have been a war god named Tuus, or possibly Turwing, a thunder god tentatively identified as the Gothic Jupiter, and named Fergunis, but his real nature is likewise obscure. The eastern gods, the Grithungai, recognized a chief god known as Gaut, to whom they linked their royal clan. There may have been a pair of twins, known as Ing and Ermin, but again their nature is unknown and even their existence questionable. Actual religious practice seems to have been broadly shamanistic, but again, can't say much more than that for certain. It's pretty thin gruel, I know. I was excited by the Middle Earth thing, though, because I'm excited by etymology, and I'm also aware that that is deeply tragic. So, before I finish up for today, I'm going to talk about matters military. Huzzah! The military history folks cry. Huzzah! At last our patience has paid off. But alas, the situation for the early Goths is similar to the religious situation, I'm afraid. The problem is, and I mentioned it way back up top, when talking about the Vilbark culture, the pagan Goths did not include weapons in their burials, meaning there is very little material in the archaeological record to work with vis-a-vis -vis early Gothic ways of making war. A Roman source notes that the Goths and Vandals both used small round shields and shortish swords, but that actually just leads to more confusion, as it seems to be an odd mix of a cavalry shield with an infantry weapon. Maybe the Goths and Vandals had invented the buckler a thousand years early? I was most surprised, though, as I started reading about all of this, to learn that the Tervingi were not, in fact, primarily cavalry. What, I hear you saying? Ridiculous. Everyone knows the Goths were horsemen. Always had been, always would be. And then you fling your smartphone into the garbage disposal to your immediate regret and your spouse's exasperation. Or maybe not. But if you had an image of Goths in your head, at all, there's a high likelihood of horses. But the Tervingi, the western Goths who the Romans interacted with most frequently, were mainly heavy infantry. How about that? True, the Grithungi out there on the open grasslands of the Ukraine were indeed excellent horsemen. Just makes sense out there. They were not, however, a horse people, a distinction that I will explain in a future episode. So as far as we can tell from descriptions and a paltry smattering of excavated material, 
The Turfingian fighting man's loadout would probably include some kind of body armor, leather, quilted material, or a male shirt, called a brunjo in Gothic. A hilms, the helmet, a skildus, shield, a word which actually means split wood, and thus gives us a clue to its construction. By the way, my pronunciation is most likely profoundly wrong, especially on skildus. I'm conscious of how many weird ways K can be pronounced. If I happen to have anyone in my audience that actually is familiar with Gothic, please let me know. I wait with bated breath. What about their swords, I hear you shouting at me. You didn't say anything about their weapons. And that is true. There are two words for sword, Mechi and Hyrus. These are, you will have noticed, completely different words, and presumably refer to completely different weapons. It's possible the Mechi was a longsword, more suited to cavalry, similar to or even copied from the Roman Spatha. The Hyrus may possibly perhaps be a short, one-edged sword, the ancestor of the later German Sax or Sayax, but that connection is tenuous at best. All we really know for sure is that there are two different words and that Hyrus appears more often. Interestingly, no word appears in Ulfalaz's Bible for the cavalry lance, though in the Goths' later history that weapon would become their signature. At this early stage, though, entirely absent. Bows were used but not mounted or massed, the way the Huns would use them, and were mostly used by the lower classes. And we know that at the watershed battle of Adrianople, the Romans, bogged down and surrounded, were pelted with large fire-hardened clubs, which for some reason seems like a much worse way to go than an arrow. What do I know, though? There is more to say about the organization of the army, and about how the Goths live when at home, their social structure, and so on, but I feel like I've talked enough for one episode. Next time we'll pick things up with the development of the Goth society and organization during that period of peace that Aurelian imposed on them, along with the appearance and development of Christianity among the barbarians. Hopefully I'll be able to get to the entrance of the greatest threat to the Goths and destabilizer of the Roman order, the Huns. Check out the website darkagespod.podbean.com. I will try to get some basic maps and notes for this episode up so it won't look quite so bleak over there as it does at the moment. Unless you're listening in the future, in which case I'm sure all is excellent. You can follow the podcast on Twitter, at DarkAgesPod. Mostly I plan to limit that to announcing episode drops and sharing the odd fact that's too exciting not to share right away. Until then, everyone, thank you for listening. And Austin dat dominus faciem suam tibi, et miserator tui. Take care.